Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today I have the honor and privilege of introducing Mr. Marian Duras. Marian is a foreign policy advisor and consultant to a member of the European Parliament and a foreign policy expert. He's got experience in international relations and the security sphere here in the United Kingdom and abroad. His education is based on engineering, but he's also got certifications in geopolitics, geostrategy, security analysis, strategy and organizational psychology. Hi, Marianne. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very kindly for inviting me and for time and space, what you provide to us. So today we're going to be discussing stress testing the European Union, and I say this because uh, this this year um, has proven to be very, very difficult for the European Union as it uh, handles many different crises at the same time. So we're going to be talking about this. We're going to be talking about the the relations within the European Union and the relations of the European Union with the rest of the world. And to start us off, I want to talk uh, about an, an anecdote of your own home country in Slovakia because Slovakia has been going through a bit of a challenging time as well lately. The former Prime Minister Igor Matovic resigned uh, on the 1st of April of this year, no coincidence with April Fool's Day, uh, following one of the weakest approval ratings of any Slovak uh, Prime Minister. His resignation captured global attention due to the revelations of a secret deal against the wishes of his coalition partners to import 2 million doses of Russia's Sputnik V vaccine, uh, which lacks, of course, the European Union regulatory uh, approval. So why do you think, Marian, this was such a political catastrophe in uh, Slovakia? Uh, was the prime minister not acting in the best interests of the people of Slovakia? And how much of this has to do with what we might call Russophobia? What happened in Slovakia in March uh, 2021 was really just a theater performance that has nothing to do with government reorganization or restoring confidence in its capabilities. The main reason was the incompetence of the prime minister and hence cabinet. They preferred to copy the toughest measures from abroad and expected a good situation. But the health crisis has no fixed logic, so as they naively thought, so what was the result? Uh, everything closed, closed schools, uh, ban on travel between districts, which means traffic jams, by time economic disasters for thousands of families. And on the, on the other hand, almost the greatest loss for lives for a million people in Europe and in the world uh, during the autumnal culmination of the pandemic. So how did they solve the situation and the huge loss of popularity? But they all pretended to resign, and in the end, only two changes from 16 would take place. Specifically, there was a change of a Minister of Health and switch between PM and uh, Minister of Finance. Okay, uh, let's now on the subject of Sputnik vaccine. PM's resignation really captured that attention, as you said, uh, due to the deal against the wishes of his partners and without knowledge of departments what are responsible for trades like this. That is true. Sputnik did trigger mainly media hysteria. Media argued that the product was not approved, uh, but in reality, they criticized Slovakia, which dared to buy something Russian. I see no other reason for this, because in many European countries, we are used to vaccines that have not been approved by European Medicines Agency or EMA. 
By the way, this agency is fee-funded with 86% of its revenue stemming from fees paid by the pharmaceutical industry, of course, not Russian, and 14% stemming from the union budget. Everyone can check this information in the European Parliament decision of 28 April 2021 on discharge in respect of the implementation of the budget of EMA for the last financial year. But to conclude, uh, the real reason of this negligible switch in government was the absolute mistrust of the population towards then PM, current Minister of Finance and current government as a whole. By the way, this current Minister of Finance admitted some time ago that he could not even manage the finances of own family and that everything is managed by wife. So the current Slovak Republic has such a Minister of Finance. And this mistrust persists and will continue to grow by the time, regardless of small exchanges. Every one day brings evidence of inability to run the country and inability of departments, whether it is education, the environment, agriculture, or the economy. Now, stepping a bit outside of Slovakia for a second um, and into the European Union as a whole, as the world is starting to open up again and tourism maybe is going to start reappearing again, uh, there's been talk of vaccine passports, there's been talk of reciprocal vaccination approval and recognition between countries uh, around the world. Uh, the United Kingdom has recently allowed access to the country for uh, double vaccinated Americans, for example, that they can be quarantine free when they come visit the United Kingdom. Um, but Sputnik 5 appears to not be in any of these lists. And I know from personal experience, uh, when considering uh, my own family coming in from Latin America to, to visit Europe, this has been a, a very big problem because uh, some of my family is able to travel and some is not, uh, simply because um, they have had Sputnik 5. So why has the EU been so slow to accept Sputnik 5? Uh, and does it have anything to do with international politics rather than science? I think we can safely say that many things within the European Union and around currently prosperous business is politically motivated. In December 2020, Politico Euronews, many leaflets informed there were a series of leaks of emails and documents surrounding the European medicines agency's approval of the Western vaccines. It highlighted the intense political pressures on uh, regulatory agencies as well as of forgotten aspect of vaccine approvals, the quality control of vaccines during the leap from clinical trials to large-scale commercial production. In the case of Sputnik, if I have good information, the Russian side has not sent all the data that is necessary for at least the conditional approval like other Western vaccines have. On the other hand, I'm not even surprised by Russian unwillingness when I see the current EU's uh, geopolitical, quite hostile approach and rhetoric. Personally, I think we should work with each party at a decent and diplomatic level and perceive the reality that anyone can potentially come up with an effective medicine or product, whether we like the leader or the country or not. And how is Slovakia coping today with COVID-19? Has the situation improved with the resignation of the Prime Minister? 
current situation in these demands is as calm as last summer. But it's uh, interesting that the government and media panic is very similar to the autumn 2020 and spring 2021, when the situation was more serious. This aspect, together with the government and media pressure to vaccination, may further increase the distrust of the public, which see with their own eyes that the current situation is quite okay and would like to live a normal life. They see the difference between reality and uh, horrible information they receive from the media. They perceive the illogicality of some measures. However, I see a danger that the government relies too much on a single tool and not using the quiet months at all to prepare and uh, reprofile hospitals and facilities to be able to receive and treat larger numbers of people in case of emergency. Again, uh, this is a proof then that the current leadership of the state is not able to ensure even the usual standard and not a crisis situation at all. I think all hopes are gone and the only hope for people is departure of current government, which will be replaced by someone much more assertive, proactive, and more able to perform all tasks what uh, office takes. Someone who will be able to work for the satisfaction, interests, natural values, safety and health citizens. Now, at the other end of Europe is another sticking point for the European Union that in one way or another, they're going to have to find a way to deal with, so to speak, this year. And of course, that is Brexit Britain, the gift that keeps on giving. Because if you thought that uh, with the signing of the uh, the treaties and accords and protocols, it was done and dusted, of course, you thought wrong. And it's very likely that in, in this decade, Brexit Britain will keep rearing its bureaucratic head. And uh, well, the most recent dispute between uh, the European Union and Britain has to do with the Northern Ireland Protocol, more specifically, Lord Frost's desire to rip up segments, if not the whole Northern Ireland Protocol altogether. Some sectors of the European Union's uh, foreign policy divisions have claimed that this is uh, amounts to blackmailing. What do you make of this, Marion? Is, is Britain blackmailing the European Union? And what are the possible scenarios that you see in as far as the uh, rewriting the protocol? Well, I will make uh, some review of, of history of this uh, relationship. Uh, last visible proof of uh, blackmailing was the use threatening to block the export of vaccines purchased by Britain because Brussels was failing or was falling behind in its own vaccine program. But I don't want to go into too much detail here because every capable diplomacy of a sovereign state can negotiate bilateral agreements and secure everything necessary for its citizens. Only wake states rely on the permission of some officials who live thousands of miles away. In September 2020, the British government and cabinet of his minister, Michael Gove, put uh, forward legislation in order to mess EU efforts to threaten the integrity of UK. Michael Gove was referring to the proposed internal market bill, which would give British government ministers the power to disapply elements of the withdrawal agreement with the EU if the bloc attempts to use it to ban the importation to the Northern Ireland from UK or to extend EU control over state aid rules. The efforts to alter the deal came as, according to British negotiator Sir David Frost, the EU was threatening to use an extreme interpretation of the withdrawal agreement 
to seriously disrupt trade between the UK's constituent nations if it does not submit to the EU's demands in the negotiations. Next thing is fishery issue. The European Union, or then the European Economic Community, amended its rules before Britain's entry in the 1970s to threat fisheries as a so-called common resource under Brussels management, knowing its new member had by far the richest stocks in Western Europe. The bloc parceled out more than half the fish in British waters to you votes under the CFP common fisheries policy, with a significant proportion of the remaining votes actually being foreign vessels, which simply register in the UK in order to access its quarter share. The British Parliament tried to outlaw this practice uh, with the Merchant Shipping Act in 1988, I think, but was overruled by judges who deemed the act incompatible with European law, proving once and for all that Britain is not sovereign as long as it remains within the bloc. These aspects, as well as a series of different events during the departure negotiations, are proved up of how the European Union actually works, despite the rich PR, positive uh, advertising, and media networks that uh, portray it in the best light. Uh, what about the uh, protocol, what you said? The UK government wants urgent changes made to the Brexit agreement, known as the Northern Ireland Protocol. Since coming into force at the start of the year, the protocol has prompted uh, disagreements with the EU. This document helps prevent checks along the line the border between Northern Ireland in the UK and the Republic of Ireland in the EU. During Brexit negotiations, all sides agreed that protecting the 1998 Northern Ireland peace deal or the Good Friday Agreement was an absolute priority. A part of that meant keeping the land border open and avoiding new infrastructure such as cameras and border posts. Uh, this, was, this was easy to do when both Ireland and Northern Ireland were part of the EU because they shared the same rules on trade and no checks were needed on goods traveling from one country to another. However, a new arrangement was needed after Brexit. The EU requires uh, many goods to be inspected when they arrive from non-EU countries, while some products are not allowed to enter at all. Despite signing up to the agreement, uh, British government says the protocol represented a huge compromise by the UK and has accused the EU of applying it too rigidly. Now the UK wants to get rid of most of the checks and reduce the customs procedures in order to allow goods to flow more freely. Uh, the EU is, has been critical of the UK stance and has insisted it must implement the terms of the protocol. The UK government says that the circumstances exist to justify the use of Article 16 of the protocol. This allows either side to suspend any part of the agreement that causes economical, societal, or environmental difficulties. But the other technical solutions could be achieved with the protocol's existing framework. A House of Lords subcommittee report from 29th July identifies a number of areas where the protocol could be improved, including simplifying customs procedures, clarifying certain legal concepts, and granting access to UK customs and uh, databases to the EU. I think at the heart of the problem is that the, the UK's approach seems to be, have your cake and eat it. Um, 
because as you say there are there are mechanisms within the protocol to be able to find a common ground and keep negotiating and keep mediating between the parties but i think at the at the heart of the uk's problem is the fact that it doesn't really want northern ireland to be uh, treated effectively as part of the european union and all that that implies but of course the united kingdom has begrudgingly aware that um, that northern ireland is of course part of the island of ireland which is part of the European Union. And uh, it seems to me a case that the United Kingdom just can't get its way. And um, and it's a sticking point. And I'm really not sure how it, it will be resolved, uh, if at all, or if things will just continue to be uh, a bit of a mess uh, as they are now. But what also worries me about this scenario is how what was agreed between the United Kingdom and the European Union not so long ago is now suddenly not agreed. And I wonder if this can also extend itself to the security sphere and whether the security cooperation, which is so vital for both of our societies uh, th that was agreed uh, last year, the year before that, is suddenly going to find itself not agreed because we couldn't find a way to make Northern Ireland behave the way we wanted to. And now suddenly we're able to, you know, throw the pram out with a baby and say, okay, well, you know, we're not going to cooperate with security now. And of course this has massive ramifications. So do you think there will be the same level of security cooperation, or do you think that they are susceptible to relations souring in other aspects as well? It is sometimes difficult to establish mutually beneficial cooperation with the European Union when it still needs to teach the whole world or punish Bronco ideas, which in their view is the idea of Brexit, the idea of leaving the Union that could inspire others. But of course, uh, no state is in the same position as the United Kingdom, whether from a geostrategic or geopolitical point of view. But on the other hand, uh, I do not expect any major change in terms of security cooperation with Europe, which will continue and then approximately the same way, especially at the level of NATO. I analyzed the document uh, Global Britain in a Competitive Age, which is the integrated review of security defense, development and foreign policy after Brexit. There we can see changes more in approach to the other powers and the region of the world than to Europe. But this is topic uh, probably for one whole discussion. If we talk about the internal security situation, I expected a little more from the British government after departure. I think that this thing is underestimated for a long time and the importance of this challenge tends to culminate and increasingly influence the security of common population. The intensity of uh, non-European migration has not decreased. There is no plan of change. The native citizens really may feel that Downing Street has forgotten them. Security forces are underfunded and really cannot deal with gangs crime. Dangerous and radicalized individuals returning from battle zones and real physical threats in the streets. I would really like to hear when I communicate with my friends in the UK that they feel safe on the streets in Westminster, in Kensington, Newham, Blackburn, or Bradford. Yes, and uh, actually, I agree with you. I think what a reading of the disintegrated review 
for me also highlights a suspicion that I've that I've had for some time now, and I and I finally have been able to formulate this into words, but not necessarily because of the integrated review, but because I'm actually trying to export, as they call, it, export my uh, dog to be able to travel to holidays with me, and uh, it's it sounds crazy, but all of the paperwork that has to go with uh, exporting a dog that used to be handled by the EU passport and now that Britain has left the EU uh, is dealt with uh, the Department of, of the Agriculture and Environment, DEFRA, uh, here in the UK. But this whole the whole experience has actually illuminated me in coming to the realization that the United Kingdom has left the European Union legally, but it has very much still a European Union member in so many other ways, specifically in terms of procedures, organization, government, regulatory aspects, a strategy, uh, military, so many, security, so many, in so many ways, the United Kingdom is either taking a very long time to redraw all of these things, or simply has come to the realization that there is no point. Because even though Brexit was a political mandate, in the functioning of the state, it very much serves no purpose to delineate these things uh, when they work perfectly fine. And um, and I found that very interesting. And I think you're absolutely right about the integrated review. I had the same reading of it. I also saw it very much as a non-departure from the usual UK's trajectory perhaps with a bit more of an interventionist leaning than other European countries, uh, excluding France. But this is because of a historical associations of empire and commonwealth and all the rest of it. Um, but in as far as everything else, and as far as our attitudes to, for example, Russia or China or cybercrime, or some, or terrorism, so many other things, the United Kingdom government still very much acts like a European Union member state. And I find this is very interesting. And uh, for a staunch remainer like me, a very hopeful thing. But let's talk a little bit more about Central Europe. So shifting away from Britain into another sticking point for the European Union and somewhere that I think has shown some fractures in the Union lately. And uh, we'll go over the, the country specifically, starting with Hungary. Uh, Hungary, while not necessarily a new headache for the European Union has now introduced this year a so-called child protection law, uh, which has been widely condemned for conflating homosexuality with paedophilia, and it banned any portrayal of LGBT people in materials that's meant for children. So not too different from a law that Russia uh, made some years ago as well, I believe. So what is the EU reaction to this, Marion, and, uh, and how can it enforce different values in a member state that is choosing to have a very different direction? Here I will say a few words very briefly. The amendment to the discuss law does not conflate these two concepts that are separated in this law. Hungary is under attack uh, of Brussels only because the protection of children and families remains their national priority. They are unwilling to let the LGBT lobby and externally paid NGOs into their schools. Reports and opinions inspired by European Commission and their crowds of media activists and organizations, which are very often funded by same European structures, are one-sided and politically biased, uh, reflecting a double standard 
against countries who do not agree with everything what comes from Brussels. And we see that European Union institutions are willing to use EU funding for blackmail. In this case, again, these people call themselves as liberals, but in reality, they understand democracy to mean that everything must go the way they want it. You frame the debate more along the, the terms of centralization versus decentralization or exactly. federalism versus unionism. So what's happening in Central Europe, or at least in Hungary, in your eyes, has more to do with protecting the state's rights. Yes. Okay, well, let's talk about Poland. A uh, similar story. The Poland Minister of Justice has gone out to say that the European Court of Human Rights violates the sovereignty of Poland after it attempted to overturn the country's court reforms. Now, I believe this has been a, a bit of a longer process because I remember hearing about the Law and Justice Party in uh, Poland for some years now. Um, but what is the legal link between this, uh, the European Court of Human Rights and the EU? Um, can, what kind of um, legal jurisdiction does it have over national lines? And uh, can it be used as a weapon? so to speak, against uh, Eastern Bloc countries that, um, that rebel against these orders. Poland's Prime Minister has laid out why judicial reforms are necessary to reform the structures shaped by the old communist regime. On the other side, the European Union does require member states to submit to its uh, jurisdiction, allegedly leading to something of symbiotic if, or if semi-detached relationship. But this case is about uh, politics and attack on national sovereignty again, because Poland has conservative government who does not accept migrant, migrant quotas and various modern requirements from the Union. The unelected European Commission, which serves as the EU's executive, has told the Polish government it must submit the EU's rules or it will pursue punishing financial sanctions. Of course, on the other side of the argument for pro-Brussels or pro-unionists uh, in the European Union, they'll say, well, there cannot be a European Union if there isn't at least some commonality in how uh, the law is carried out, and especially as it regards to human rights, um, because otherwise it risks descending into a, a very loose trade union that's not really a union of countries, but rather just a, a customs uh, body or something like that, which perhaps would have made many Brexiters happy, right? But you, but you have this, this sort of historical debate within the European Union of, okay, what are we? Are we a body that says, if you want to be a member, you've got to sign up to all of this list of values and laws and the way of doing things and a currency and whatever else it is? Or are we just say, Poland and Germany have agreed we are going to export and import stuff without paying uh, you know, uh, tariffs or whatever it is. And, um, and is, is that debate now playing out in Poland, for example? Do the Polish people think we don't want uh, everything else with the European Union, we just want the good stuff. We just want the no tariffs and low taxes and funding and whatever it is. We definitely don't want the laws and the human rights and all the rest of it. Is, is that what's happening? Yes, yes, we can say it's a way. But uh, when we return to the topic of uh, ECHR and, and this relationship with the uh, European Union, 
uh, when we said about Poland, um, there is there is connected and very very intense with the European Court of Human Rights, and it's technically not a European Union institution, but for example, Britain remains subject to it despite Brexit. Yes, it is a very interesting party, often quoted in the media and can also be seen as a weapon against Central and Eastern Europe, which have different, uh, more traditional worldview than the Western part. Just for imagination, ACHR has rejected uh, Russia's request for interim measures in relation to its complaint against Ukraine over violations of the European Convention on Human Rights and blockade of access to drinking water. The court decided uh, to reject the request under Rule 29, since allegedly it not, not uh, involve a serious risk of irreparable harm of a core right, yes? But the same organization, same ECHR, considered same-sex marriages more important than access to drinking water, and they appealed this country, Russian Federation, to create a legal framework. So enough to know the values and intentions of this body. And that concludes the first part of my conversation with Marian Duras on the subject of the political challenges faced by the European Union in 2021. Stay tuned for the second part, where we elaborate more on these issues. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day. Thank you.